Hi, everyone. Thank you for tuning back in for another episode of the Berkeley Technology Law Podcast. Today, we interviewed Professor Rebecca Sosi, Regents Professor of Law, Faculty Co-Chair of the Indigenous Peoples Law and Policy Program, and Special Advisor to the Provost for Diversity and Inclusion at the University of Arizona Law School. Shantae Westmoreland and Professor Sosi discussed the lack of intangible cultural property protection for tribes in the United States. Intangible cultural property includes sacred traditional knowledge essential to the tribal ways of life. As it stands, intellectual property laws and current cultural property regimes provide limited protection for tangible cultural objects, but fail to protect the sacred knowledge the object represents, which is the very thing that makes it important. Uh, so, my name is Rebecca Sosi, and I've been teaching since 1993, if you can believe that. So, I graduated from UCLA and came to clerk in Arizona and um, did some work at a private law firm and then just went right into teaching at Arizona State. And in that role, I actually was the first faculty director of the Indian legal program there. And I was the first faculty person to be, you know, involved in developing the curriculum for Mm -hmm. Indian law. Mm -hmm. And so as you might imagine, in 93, 94, it was pretty rudimentary that we're just a handful of people around the country who were teaching federal Indian law, and right. basically that was like one class in jurisdiction. And I developed the curriculum there to reflect my own interests, which <laughs> were multiple, but basically I was intrigued with the whole idea of indigenous self-determination. Mm-hmm. As a People were talking about tribal sovereignty as a jurisdictional construct, meaning what were the powers of federally recognized tribal governments, um, what were the powers of the tribal court, how Mm -hmm. was the reach of tribal law, um, and criminal civil jurisdiction were the main focus areas. And I really felt that self-determination as a principle that belongs in, in a political and moral sense, it frames the rights of a people mm-hmm. to autonomy, to autonomy in their ways of life, in their social, cultural, political, legal organization. And so that became a template for my work in environmental and natural resources work, mm-hmm. in cultural resources work, and in the political and moral theory of self-determination, which are all areas that I've continued to write and publish in and speak on. Um, And with respect to um, cultural cultural sovereignty, that was was very important to me to position the idea of sovereignty, which if we think about the agency of, of governance, So self-determination is the moral and political right of a people to be autonomous. But Mm -hmm. the governance authority really is linked to this power that we equate with legal sovereignty, right? The power to exercise criminal or civil jurisdiction, for example. Um, Cultural sovereignty was the other side of that for indigenous nations. So if you think about sovereignty, sort of the inherent sovereignty of an indigenous nation, it's self-authenticating, it stems from time immemorial, and it has a very distinctive cultural frame. 
And when you look at the cultural sovereignty of indigenous nations, that is a rich repository of traditional knowledge about the um, the way that power the way that power sits or resides. Power sits in places. That's a famous line from Keith Bethel's um, work with um, Western Apache peoples. Mm-hmm. That significance of origin places, for example, to indigenous peoples. So power is part of those places, but it also invokes a responsibility in the people with respect to the place, with respect to kinship relationships with each other and with other nations, and with respect to what we're going to frame in this conversation as perhaps cultural property or cultural resources, that Mm -hmm. means the tangible or intangible components of culture that are um, basically controlled by the communities of origin. Awesome. Thank you so much. Um, there was obviously a lot of really good information packed in there, and so I just wanted to highlight sort of the main the main points that you were saying, which was that um, the tribes are sovereign nations, which, as you stated, there, there's kind of two sides to that coin, which is jurisdictional sovereignty and power to govern their people and the space that they occupy, as well as um, sort of the, the cultural sovereignty, which is sort of wrapped into that idea of cultural self-determination. So that's, um, thank you so much for framing that. Um, so I'm going to narrow us down a little bit towards an interview that you gave um, with the Native American Rights Fund, uh, NARF, um, back in June, I believe. Um, so in the interview, you framed, um, you described current issues surrounding intellectual property and cultural property. Can you sort of talk a little bit about the difference between um, in what we call intellectual property and what is called either cultural property or cultural resources? Yes, yes, a very um, good question and, and actually amazingly complicated. So if you <laughs> thought about the study of property as a law student or a law professor, you know, that would take us back to the idea of the bundle of rights, for example, that people have with mm-hmm. respect to particular resources. And most of them, of course, are tangible in the old English common law, right? So you have land mm-hmm. or you have chattels. Um, intellectual property is a much more recent innovation, although it does have old antecedents, right, in the mm-hmm. law of, um, you know, trademark, for example, or, you know, copyright, um, authors, works of authorship, rights and works of authorship. But in the United States and in many nations today, um, intellectual property is a, a profoundly lucrative um, realm. So the rights to intangibles. Um, That's something that we're uh, witnessing with respect to rights to technology and biotechnology. But we organize the categories of intellectual property around the standard categories that have emerged. And there's a power for the United States Congress and the Constitution to um, to regulate patents and to regulate copyrights, right? So we have federal statutes there as well as 
bodies of state law, which essentially can't counter federal law, but they but their residual views of the state's approach to the control of intangible resources. Um, so, for example, um, trade secrets, that's mm-hmm. an area that's heavily governed um, by state law and by those conceptions of um, when com- competition between people is appropriate and when it's not appropriate. And when it's not appropriate, it's restricted by agreements. But essentially, Anglo-American intellectual property law is mm-hmm. built around an economic lens. There is a concept of moral rights embedded in intellectual property law. You mm-hmm. find that more uh, more so in Europe, for example, France, very strong moral rights tradition in their intellectual property law. The U.S. has some version of that in terms of artist rights, but it's not a robust theory of moral rights. So it's a theory of economic rights. Right. And okay. Therefore, if, if you understand the foundation in U.S. property law, the innovation of intellectual property law, then the question becomes, well, for Native people, how do the laws of intellectual property law further their interests or perhaps undermine their interests? Mm -hmm. And that was an area that I was very drawn to when I first started teaching in, in 93 and 94, I developed what may have been one of the first classes on on Native American cultural property, cultural resources law. I'm trying to remember, because I created my own materials. I couldn't find anything in the law. Right. I was was really taken with the world of the intangible, with, um, you know, the the things that I saw tribes trying to protect, you know, their ceremonies, their sacred places, the traditional knowledge that, that... governs that sacred objects, objects of cultural patrimony. We had the Native American Graves Protection and Repatriation Act um, in 1990. That covers the material cultural heritage of Native people to defined categories, including sacred objects and objects of cultural patrimony. But the meaning that attaches to those objects is in the realm of the intangible. It's traditional knowledge, it's songs, it's ceremonies, it's the very things that have enabled cultural survival for Native people throughout many generations under conditions of extreme hardship and challenge, right? So it's a very, very important um, aspect of tribal culture. I could not find a source that talked collectively about Native cultural heritage, and right. so I I started to do my work in that area, and I was later joined by wonderful colleagues. So I you know I think the world of Kristen Carpenter and Angela Riley, um, they're they're um, you know a few years behind me in law school and in law teaching, but they're extraordinary scholars who then started to write about this. Um, you know, in, in the later years. So this has been under development, I, I mean, certainly post-1990, you know, the right. in law school, there wasn't anything on this. Absolutely. And I can definitely talk about any aspect of, of Native rights, but I want to highlight how 
how new it is in the law to think about this as a separate category of rights and to be responsive to that. Absolutely. So just to sort of make it a little more concrete for folks, intangible cultural resources or cultural property, so such as the songs and the stories, U.S. intellectual property laws as they stand do not protect those types of intangible resources in the same way that they protect, like, um, a, a, a story written by an American author under U.S. copyright laws. Can you kind of flesh out that example a little bit and talk about maybe sort of some of the reasons why U.S. property law wouldn't cover, um, like, a traditional story? Absolutely. Thank you so much for that question. It's a very good question. So let's talk about copyright, patent, trademark, mm -hmm. and trade secret. Those would be mm -hmm. the four main areas of U.S. intellectual property law that we have to deal with. So the law of copyright protects original works of authorship that are fixed in a tangible medium, and it does this for the life of the author plus some term, depending on when the work came into being. So right. perpetuity. After that, the work falls into the public domain, and other people can freely appropriate the idea as long as they don't appropriate the exact expression and try to pass it off as theirs, for example. There's, mm -hmm. there's nothing to stop people. You know, Romeo and Juliet was a story about star-crossed lovers. You know, we have five million of those stories. So as long as you don't appropriate, you know, the exact expression, that's fine. And, and we do protect original works of authorship. So that is an individual model of somebody who did some labor that we want to reward their original work of authorship for a limited period of time, and then mm -hmm. it goes into the public domain, and we don't we don't worry about it anymore. If we're talking about tribal stories, tribal narratives, um, those are ancient. They date from time immemorial. They belong to the tribe as an entity, as a collective that has been in existence since time immemorial. Right. Um, so the law currently would say, well, that falls in a different category. That's folklore. And folklore is in the public domain. Anybody can use any folklore from any culture. It's all in that public domain. Mm -hmm. So that would be an example of why copyright law is not appropriate, because it's not an individual authorship. It's a group. It's very ancient. It's not new. And it's just and the reasons to protect it are cultural and spiritual. They're not economic. Right. Similarly, trademark, um, well, first, I guess patent. Patent would be the next one, right? So patent is, is new, innovative, you know, technology. So we look at the, the utility of the innovation, the scientific value and merit and character. Mm -hmm. It's a 20-year period. You you get something, you know, before the patent office. They say yes, this is novel, or, you know, new utility factor that's net. So so it's new technology, and we want to give you a 20-year kind of lock on the value of that, and then it goes into the public domain. So again, you know, if we look at indigenous knowledge that would equate to technology, for example. 
um, pharmaceuticals, the knowledge of plant medicines. Mm-hmm. Um, that's ancient knowledge. Um, those are things in nature. You can't patent things that are in nature like a plant. It has to be your invention. So biotechnology actually privileges people that take cells and create cell lines. You know, it doesn't protect the original repository of the natural um, feature. So, again, patent law, not a good fit. Um, Trademark law, very specific. It's commercial identity. The Indian Mm -hmm. Art Act does protect Native artists um, who are enrolled members of federally recognized tribes or descendants who are certified by the tribe, it does protect their ability to market their art as Indian made, so others can't do that. That's a congressional statute. Mm-hmm. Um, but again, it's not a robust protection for any particular um, culture or, or feature of culture. Right. And trade secrets, secret knowledge, that's essentially kept secret and has great economic value. So a lot of it just doesn't doesn't pertain to what Native people seek to protect. Right. And so in your mind, what are the concerns, either ethical or legal, of this gap in the law? Well, so the biggest one that people have identified, obviously, is framed under the rubric of cultural appropriation. And that is a highly contested term. <laughs> so that, that's why I, I, if, if I was sitting with you, we would put little air quotes around it. Yes, you know, yes. Because everybody has an account of what that means. Right. So for, I think for many, you know, tribal governments and Native people, they think that it's in, inappropriate and unethical and should be illegal for cultural outsiders to take various parts of their culture and then, you know, market them. So the, um, you know, the sweat lodge controversy would have been one example of that, the individual who did the sweat lodge in Sedona and killed a lot of people, mm-hmm. you know, because they basically got too hot because that was marketed as a Native American sweat lodge. So right after that happened, a lot of us would get phone calls from reporters saying, you know, how could tribes do these types of ceremonies? Like, that's dangerous. And well, he wasn't a tribal member. That wasn't a tribal ceremony. It was an appropriation of a ceremony for the commercial benefit of this individual, but it was a total desecration. So, and I could give you many examples of that. So appropriate parts of the culture, do something with it that isn't the culture, and that is a cultural appropriation in the sense that Sally Engel Mary, the famous anthropologist, has written about this um, in very thoughtful work where she basically says, you know, cultural appropriation is when one group takes a, a cultural item or you know, symbol from one group that has, it has a local context, it has a local meaning. Mm-hmm. Outside group takes it, they transform its meaning into mm-hmm. something else, and then they do something else with it, right? Now, the law struggles to find what the harm is to the group. So I recently gave a talk to a um, very delightful audience, um, not, <laughs> not, you know, they and spend a lot of time on this issue, but they were intellectual property experts. And mm-hmm. by and large, they were all saying is, 
You know, what, so what's the big deal? Right. You can still practice your culture. You can still believe what you want to believe. Like, why do you really care if somebody takes this song or that image or that thing? Let, let them do whatever. You know, this is freedom of, of speech. This is freedom of expression. We think right. democracy. So that's always the pushback, right? Yes. Yes, and I have an account of that that I've written about in different work, which is the, the concept of cultural harm. And so I wrote about that in the context of the um, infamous um, case that basically the Havasupai had to sue for the taking of their genetic material in a way that was completely inappropriate. And so I wrote this article on the concept of cultural harm. You know, so mm-hmm. how can harm be... Um, understood within a cultural framework, if you come from a group that has a different metaphysics and you believe that harm can happen in the tangible world as a result of desecration in the intangible world, if you believe that those two realms are united, that there's a cause and effect, then that's a version of cultural harm, right? I mean, so it takes one culture to say, oh, no, spiritual stuff, that's nonsense, you know? Mm-hmm. Really, we're looking at tangible economic harm. Do they have a dollars and cents cost to you? You know, something like that. Right. And so the idea of cultural harm is very, very necessary to understand the range of harm. And so I guess, you know, after we've just talked about, you know, how bleak the landscape seems to be, that there seems to be at least some steps being taken to address this issue so that i i do like to think on the upside of things so <laughs> we, we exactly end on a high note <laughs> right so the high note for me is really promised again on self-determination so in 2007 when the u.n um adopted the General Assembly adopted the UN Declaration on the Rights of Indigenous Peoples by majority consensus and the U.S. initially dissented in the Bush administration but then came around in the Obama administration and basically said, yes, you know, Indigenous peoples are peoples with a right to self-determination just as all other peoples. And that was embedded in the... um, the covenant on civil and political rights, of course, mm-hmm. but it has not been extended to indigenous people. So this is the declaration saying that nation states need to craft partnerships with indigenous peoples within their territory and co-create the conditions for justice in the years to come, as well as making repair for past injustices. So I took that to be the, the challenge, right? That right. need to, and in the U.S., we would say there needs to be a consultation with, mm-hmm. for example, federally recognized tribes about the positions that the United States might take that may be um, at odds with what indigenous peoples here need. So, mm-hmm. for example, in the area of um you know, where where we're seeking to explore in a global context whether this category that we're framing as traditional cultural expressions merits protection, and that's the conversation in the world intellectual property organization right now. Mm -hmm. So traditional cultural expressions merit protection even if they are not 
subject to protection under the domestic copyright laws of a particular nation state, which would be the case for much of what we've been talking about. Right. So conversation is happening. There's a treaty process underway. Um, also, genetic resources, also traditional knowledge. All three of those are categories in the WIPO negotiations. And what I have been seeking to um, underscore in collaboration with the wonderful, wonderful attorneys at the Native American Rights Fund, um, at the Indian Law Resource Center, many organizations that work with indigenous peoples worldwide, they're basically stressing that mm -hmm. the old conversation of property rights must be informed by a human rights discourse so that we can't have these um, kind of hegemonies, legal hegemonies continuing, right, where we say, we know what property is and we know you don't have it. Right. No, we have to have a, a dialogue. We have to have a process to basically understand, well, what is this group seeking to protect and how can we work to foster respect and protection for their human rights to define their property and the things that are of central importance to them. So that is the impetus for the change in the years ahead. Thank you again for listening. This interview was made possible by the Berkeley Technology Law Journal, the Berkeley Center for Law and Technology, and the Indigenous Peoples Law and Policy Program at the University of Arizona. 